morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming to join us for this session. Uh, if I could get your attention, thank you very much. Um, my name is Anne, Anne Lee, I'm your moderator. Actually, my name is Dr. Anne Lee, I've just got a PhD, so you know. Uh, in Southeast Asian studies, but I managed to get away with looking at political satire, so I laughed and cried my way through it. Um, but yeah, the other you know, news is that I'm also a three-day-old mama of Rhea, who I was telling all our panelists about. So um, now I, this panel session uh, is, it can be weighty or weighty or it can be weighty light. Uh, we were sort of discussing earlier about what uh, kind of approach we're going to have and we're just going to fly by the seat of our pants basically. Um, now I don't know what you know about Walter Benjamin but I'm going to just kind of outline a little bit about um, the, the, the topic in terms of what has been written in the marketing blurb. I mean, I've been lucky to be a moderator for about five festivals now, and uh, uh, I like to think that of the questions posed, hopefully we'll get to answering at least one of them. Uh, and we have kind of gone, gone through some of that. So it says, invoking Walter Benjamin's angel of history, this conversation will explore how writers grapple with the rubble and fragments left by the storm of progress, how do writers help us remember in this age of historical amnesia? And how do writers embrace the future without being, par without being paralyzed by the burden of the past? Um, now, I would like to introduce our distinguished panelists. Um, look at the amount of white hair. Look at us, all from the bottle. So clearly, you know, we are posers at least. Uh, let me start with Amina. Um, Amina is a Sri Lankan sociologist, writer and editor. She has published short stories, one novel, The Moon in the Water, uh, in 2009, which was long-listed for the Man Asian Award. She's edited three children's books, and fascinating for me, one book of erotica, and many essays on current affairs. Um, and you may have read in, in uh, May this year, she wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, about fighting for the soul of Islam in Sri Lanka which is about her struggling to understand how violence uh, uh, has happened in relation to the Easter Sunday bombings. Um, and I, I think for, I'm, I've, I feel that of all the writers uh, uh, that we have had today, to me everyone is a, is a heavyweight and um, I, I look forward to what they have uh, in terms of their perspectives of, of, of our subject today. Now, uh, uh, Amina is also co-founder of the Pereira Hussein Publishing House, um, uh, which publishes, publishes Sri Lankan fiction and non-fiction as well. Okay, and then let me go to um, uh, Elliot. Uh, Elliot is a contemporary American writer, political commentator, essayist, editor, and translator. I'm going to stop there because uh, the, the bio that you have in your... Um, uh, uh, books is something which is really, it's, a, it's about 15, if not 20 years old. So he really has done much, much more. And if you have, uh, he writes in new directions most frequently. Uh, if you, if you, and if you haven't, he's also not above publishing in the likes of harpers.com and, and so forth, some of his essays. Uh, he has, his latest is on the ghosts of birds. Um, and his style is really as a sort of poem essay. If, you know, he is an innovator in, in the genre of writing essays. Um, 
he is also writes about politics and his articles uh, have been collected in What I Heard About Iraq, which was called by The Guardian as the one anti-war classic of the Iraq war. Um, he's the translator, he's done a lot of the translations. He's asked me not to mention, uh, highlight all of that because you know this is something that uh, you, you, you can read at your pleasure. Um, of course, um, he was the first uh, translator of the work of uh, Octavio Paz, uh, um, and, you know, he did that at the age of 19. Is that right, Elliot? Yes, yes, the yes, the first book. So my mother would call that just boasting or something. <laughs> um, so really wonderful, wonderful work. And, of course, he has translated uh, Borges' uh, works as well, S selected non-fictions, won the uh, National Book of uh, Critics Circles Prize for Criticism. And um, what I like is that in, in one interview, Eliot says that he has almost nothing in common with Borges, except in the area of Icelandic sagas, uh, and that he too is an Anglophile. He said his image of paradise... Oh, sorry, Anglophobe. <laughs> yeah, okay. Nicely pointed out, okay. His image, let me, let me get this right. His image of paradise is not a library, however. Um, reading is what he does when he can travel. Uh, but apparently, um, uh, Foucault, Michel Foucault, believed that Borges' uh, encyclopedia was real, um, uh, and uh, to which uh, Eliot replies, people will believe anything attributed to the mysterious East, which I think is a lovely, lovely truth. Uh, of course, he is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, um, and uh, his writing has been translated in, I don't know, 30 languages? So, okay, thank you uh, to both our panelists. And Gunawan um, Muhammad, uh, who I am blessed to know as Mas Gun, uh, is an Indonesian writer, journalist, um, painter as well, which is less known, I think, by, by many in the room. Um, in 1971, he co-founded Tempo, which is really the legendary Indonesian weekly uh, that covers news and politics. When I lived in Jakarta for 11 years, um, it was still essential reading, and I would read both the Bahasa Indonesia and the English versions to see what was selected between the two editions and, 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 and why. Um, there, there is a wonderful book by Janet Steele, if you know, it's called Wars Within, the story of Tempo, an independent magazine in Suharto's uh, Indonesia, which I think is also very insightful about how it was possible to get to ind independent journalism during that time. Uh, as the biography says, which is, uh, sorry, as the, as the marketing blurb is correct, that he, he has, um, he's written a number of books of, uh, uh, on his essays of Chatatan um, Bingir, which is sidelines, which are, it says, short notes and ideas and politics that have been collected in no less than 12 volumes. So this is fairly prolific, I think. He has written librettos on opera as well, including one on um, Tan Malaka, which was a uh, privilege to see in uh, Salihara, which is an independent arts uh, center that uh, Masgun founded in Jakarta. Uh, it has a theater, a studio, art gallery, and spaces for workshops, and has its own um, uh, 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 festivals itself. Um, he is International Editor of the Year. He's won one of those. He's won a number of prizes, including the Dan David Prize. Um, and uh, his recent book of poetry, his eighth book of poetry, is called Tigris, which is alongside his poems, 
on um, Don Quixote, which is actually going to be turned into kind of wayang um, that, uh, of uh, Don Quixote in Sundanese and will travel around. Um, so forgive me for taking some time about um, these heavyweights that we have here, but I really sometimes, I don't have time necessarily to read all the uh, 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 bluff and sometimes you know something about someone and then you find out it's not actually true. So all of this is legit. Approved by all three people. Yeah, I could have made something up, but I, I didn't. So, uh, I, I, because of the thesis, I need to give you a warning that if it, if it looks like I'm mocking authority by play, um, I probably am. Uh, but uh, uh, this is a subject which is is certainly serious, and you may or may not recognize this image, but this is key to our uh, session today. This is uh, Angelus Novus, New Angel. It's a 1920 monoprint by Paul Clay, and um, this is what uh, inspired Benjamin's writings um, in his uh, um, thesis, well, it's on the philosophy or on the concept of history. Um, and he purchased the print in 1921, and he interprets it this way. I think it's worth describing in detail so that we can understand what is this notion of angel of history and storm of progress. A clay painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned toward the past. When we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. Now, in summary, some have described this theory of history as a melancholy view of the historical process as an increasing cycle of despair. My first question to our panelists, and you know, if we get along in the conversation would be great, but I would like to know first, what is your response to the meaning, and if not the validity of Benjamin's notion of the angel of history and the storm of progress? Thank you, Anne, and thank you, everybody, for coming to listen to us. And we have two heavyweights and one just heavy in weight. <laughs> so uh, since you looked at me so pointedly, I will attempt to answer it. I have to confess that I first read uh, Benjamin's description, then I saw the painting. So I was a bit surprised because I expected something uh, quite different. Um, and I also had the feeling that if Benjamin had not written about the painting as he had, I wondered what pe other people's interpretation of the painting would be. And I've forgotten your question. No, no. Well, it's, it's really, you know, the, the angel of history, how th this, this idea that, you know, there is a cycle of despair. It's kind of, it's a, he, his writing goes on to emphasize influence Adorno and many it others, is, right? To sort of say, like, for example, after Auschwitz, 
there is no poetry. There's you know, this I, kind yeah, of Yeah, and I think that's where he was coming from. And it is, if you take world history, it is indeed one catastrophe after another. And if I take Sri Lanka in context, this angel is just constantly overwhelmed by everything that has happened since independence. But I also like to think that it's a very dark way of looking at the world and how humanity is, and that in the midst of darkness, we always find these bright lights that come out and give us hope. So when we were going through 26 years of war in Sri Lanka, of civil war, as I was telling Elliot, when the war ended, we didn't know how to live in a state of non-war because we had got so used to living in a state of war because uh, generations had been born and by the time they were 26, they didn't know anything else but living in a state of conflict or of unrest. But we are such a resilient people, we immediately forgot and had 10 years of, of I, I don't like to use the word peace because peace denotes so many other things, so I will say non-war or non-conflict because peace is achieved only when there is justice and equality and we still haven't got there yet in Sri Lanka. But then we had these terrible Easter bombings that happened that came absolutely from nowhere. We were in shock for days. I was depressed for a month because I just could not believe what had happened and the, the echoing sentiment amongst everybody is like, oh no, are we going to go through this again? Which we did not want. So I'll leave on that note and, and hand it over to Elliot. Um, let's see. Well, I mean, first of all, the Adorno quote, you know, after Auschwitz, there's no poetry, always struck me as one of the most untrue statements. Um, it's, it's probably more true to say after Auschwitz, there's only poetry. Um, but uh, uh, by weird coincidence, uh, I've just written a, a short book about angels uh, which is going to come out next year, and it's about Christian angels, not uh, not uh, Islamic or Jewish angels. And uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, everything we know about angels uh, actually happens after the Bible, and not in the Bible. And that, um, for example, what angels look like. Uh, in the Old Testament, they look like young men. They don't have wings. And uh, when uh, two angels accompany Abraham to go into Sodom to, uh, to find a just man, the Sodomites think they're really cute and try to seduce them. Um, and then as the centuries go by, uh, whenever anybody sees an angel, the angel tends to um, reflect whatever their interests are. So for example, uh, in the Renaissance, you have a... a, a uh, a great scientist and, and polymath, Athenaeus Kircher, who sees an angel, and the angel is uh, holding all sorts of scientific instruments. Um, in the 16th century, a bunch of chicken farmers in England uh, see angels, and the angels look just like chickens, but with human faces, and, uh, and so on. And what, what always struck me about the, uh, the famous passage by, uh, by Benjamin uh, about this monoprint by Clay is that actually it doesn't look at all like his description. Um, the angel is not standing in rubble. 
Uh, it does not look like it's being blown uh, uh, from the past into the future. Uh, in fact, it's a very static image. Um, and it looks almost like a, a Russian icon or a medieval European uh, 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 painting of just the angel kind of standing there and staring. And so basically the lesson of it is that um, don't believe anything anybody says about angels because <laughs> <laughs> it's really not true. Yes, I love the underlying theme so far that the angel does not look anything like how we imagined. Yeah, for me, it's sort of like a bit like a dog, a bit jilling and with the eyes. But anyway, um, Masgun, please, can you give us your perspective on the notion of the angel of history? Well, uh, I'm raised in a Muslim tradition, so angel is more or less like the Judaic tradition. It's called Malaikat, which is the Hebrew name is Malaik. Is it right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, messenger. Uh, but I agree with Elliot that Benjamin's angelus nervous is a bit strange. Uh, as I see it, this is a more comical than tragic. You see the, the, it, the head is toppled by curly hair like parchment. And uh, the eyes are wide open like uh, Maybe it's a maze or it's just addition some joy in the white eyes. And the mouth shows four funny tooth, teeth. Am I right? And the wings. Maybe he, it's a broadening that instead of being pushed by the wing, of, by the, the storm of progress. Uh, maybe, but Benjamin is a very lucky philosopher. He writes enigmatic sentences, and we were intrigued, challenged, and keep talking about his work, like what we are doing today. Uh, it's a kind of the spell of enigma. Uh, uh, I, I, I suspect that there are two interpretations of, of Angelus Novus. You know, the name is New Angel. And I read somewhere that in the year, Benjamin purchased the drawing, it's not a painting, it's a drawing, uh, in 2091. He writes, uh, let me, uh, he writes, uh, uh, he's, he started up a new magazine and writes something interesting. Uh, let me, uh, he wrote a Talmudic, legion about angels who are being constantly created and find an abode in the fragments of the presence. You see, a constant creation of angels means endless emergence of new angels, angelos novus. It is a metaphor of history as a perpetual change and novelty, meaning that history, the sun and fury doesn't signify nothing or Gloom, maybe just change, a renewal. And then, you know, Benjamin once says about the weak messianic force. Yeah. Maybe that's it. And, but then, two, 20 years later, in 1940, he wrote this famous thesis of history, philosophy of history. And that's the, that was when he was. Oh. Shall I repeat it? 
the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Just, just the last part, my screen. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's listening sorry, intently, sorry. I know. I tend to mumble. Uh, so the, you were talking about the messianic, the yeah, idea the of... the messianic force in history, which is, to, to me is a, it's always signs of goodness, promise of happiness and goodness in every moment between people. And that's rather optimistic note. Even though in 1940, when you ran away from Germany to France and committed suicide because France was being occupied by German, then the gloom started to overhang everything, rightly so. And that's why I think there are two readings of Rufus Angelus. And he, he changed his interpretations. Why not? Um, I, I think, uh, in terms of the sort of general theme of this and how we deal, because we are, history is storytelling and we're all you know, writers in terms of how to interpret the present and uh, in terms of being able to refer to the past. The burdens of the past uh, uh, is generally what we understand. Um, now, it, this question here refers specifically to this idea of historical amnesia. Um, uh, now, in what ways is this an age of historical amnesia? I think it's a very broad uh, uh, question. Um, but as I write, I don't know if you read uh, recently, Joseph Stiglitz's essay has, in his latest essay, he's written about the end of liberalism and the rebirth of history. Uh, all of these grand statements, but I think that is in, typically in response to um, Fukuyama's famous uh, uh, essay around um, the end of history, that uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, political scientist uh, Fukuyama wrote a celebrated essay called The End of History, in which he said communism's collapse would clear the last obstacles separating the entire world from its destiny of liberal democracy and market economies. Many people agreed. Um, but in uh, Stiglitz's response, he says the credibility of neoliberalism's faith in unfettered markets as the surest way to share prosperity is on life support these days, and as well it should be. Neoliberalism has undermined democracy for 40 years. Can I ask from your perspectives, in your point, do you, what is your response to the question of, is this an age of historical amnesia? Anyone like to go with that? Nobody? <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, well, f uh, first of all, I, I always thought that the, the, the phrase, the end of history, Fukuyama's phrase, is one of the dumbest things that's been said in the last 25 years. I mean, the end of history happens with, uh, you know, total nuclear war or a climatic uh, uh, catastrophe. And so the idea that 1989 was the end of history, well, somehow it's 30 years later and, you know, history is marching on. Um, uh, so to me, I mean, the two, uh, the two most ridiculous phrases that came from the right wing in the last 30 years was the end of history and the clash of civilizations. Um, but in, in terms of, uh, what's the question, historical amnesia, right? I think that there is, uh, uh, there certainly are, are, are short-term uh, amnesias. Um, f for example, uh, 
one of the things I do when I write about politics is try to um, recover the events that had happened recently. Um, for example, during the Iraq War, it's kind of hard to remember now, but in the United States, uh, the media was uh, entirely supportive of the Iraq War, and everyone had sort of forgotten how the whole thing began and the phony weapons of mass destruction and so forth and so on. So I kind of was writing a, a, a history not that many years later, just a year or two later, about how we got into that mess. And certainly at the moment in the United States, uh, with our current uh, president, there's so much news generated every single day that one tends to forget what happened last week. So uh, the last piece I wrote about politics was just a chronicle of everything that happened over the summer because we'd already forgotten it by the time September came around. So I mean, there, I think there is this kind of short-term amnesia. On the other hand, I think that there is uh, w one of the most interesting things that's happening in history now, uh, I should say in writing about history now, is, uh, the in, is in fact against amnesia and is the inclusion of all the people who were excluded from history. And so all the, it seems to me all the best writing in history now um, is taking, I mean, is no longer the, the chronicles of kings and, and leaders, but it's all the people who were, who were left out, which of course, uh, uh, women, people of color, so forth and so on, the, the, the colonized rather than the, uh, the, the colonizers and so forth. So I think there's a tremendous effort, you know, against that, that sense of amnesia. So I tend to agree with Elliot. I'm also adding that, so you have the end of history, I mean, that's a phrase, you have the erasure of history and you have the rewriting of history. So it depends on, on it, they say history is written by the victors. And I can see that in relation to Sri Lanka, that you have many kinds of histories. So you have the history, you have a very nationalist, chauvinist Sinhala government that would, would write a history that wants to believe that the, ta the minorities are either recent arrivals or didn't contribute very much. Then you go to the other extreme where the minorities are trying to prove that they were there, they're even myth-making sometimes because in, they go to such extremes to say, no, we are from here. And in a very personal example of how you see history, we went through uh, seven years of a socialist government. Elliot visited at that time in the 1970s. I was a child. For us, it was a very idyllic time, and when I talk about my childhood, I'm always recreating that life was simple, we made do with whatever was available. If you talk to my parents, or my parents' generation, of that same time, it was a time of horror. It was austerity, it was, uh, they couldn't live the way they lived during the time of the British, and so you see it in very different ways. So history is a very contentious subject, as you may know in Malaysia, all, all over the world. It depends on who is writing it. But again, as Elliot says, who now, the minorities and the dispossessed, the previously dispossessed, have the tools to start writing their own histories. So you have 
alternative views and it's up to you, the reader, to actually make an effort and read the many different kinds of histories to find a somewhat, uh, I, I can't even say accurate picture, but somewhat balanced picture. Uh, I don't think there's any age, including our age, which uh, is marked by historical amnesia. Uh, I think what Marx says about the limit of history is still valid. Uh, the tradition of all dead generation, we like the nightmare uh, on the brains of the living. Sorry, so, sorry could you repeat that? Uh, uh, the tradition of all dead generation, we like a nightmare on the brain of the living. So there's no amnesia. Some people wrote history wrongly into their interests, but they're always, as Amina said, an alternative history. The minorities, the unspoken, always try to subvert their own stories, narratives. Uh, so I don't think you can use this fancy word, historical amnesia, for any kind of age. Uh, yeah, oh, well, the current upsurge of fundamentalism is a case in point. The Wahhabis like, would like would refuse to abandon what they see as the original Islamic precept con conceived centuries ago. The paradox of the Hawabi is that it's anti-history, but it claims to the sanctified memory of the text. So no, no, no forgetting at all. Uh, but uh, maybe you'd say that erasure is a better word than, than amnesia. So in, instead of, uh, I mean, instead of completely forgetting what it's, what it is doing is erasing a certain kind of history mm. to promote another kind of history. Yeah, erasing maybe deliberately or because the, the growing intensity and fastness of information and the, the multiplicity of sources uh, tempt us to believe that there's some process of mass forgetting. But as, as Elliot said, actually there are some erasures. Erase, erasing the past, deliberately or undeliberately. And I don't know how, how, why people forget that the current Islamic State's trouble began when Bush and uh, and Blair invaded Iraq illegally. And they are not being treated as war criminals, but they create a lot of havoc today. Yeah, I think this is the difficult thing about history in the sense there is no history as such. There are histories, and the contesting always happens. Um, I'm reminded about uh, how I first came to history. Uh, uh, Mr. Stevenson was our history master, um, and uh, he was very, very uh, popular. He was very handsome, and um, to this day my writing is based on his handwork. But one of the great things that he did was uh, not teach us about kings, queens, dates, and so forth, but he showed us, a, uh, uh, I remember even today, I was 14, 15 at the time, uh, of two historians, it was a, a documentary, a series, actually, two historians talking about the history of uh, Wales at that, at that time. 
and one was a Marxist and one was you know, a, a Tory, and they both had their own histories of what happened to Wales. And there they were competing and talking in, in stories that seemed coherent, uh, persuasive, uh, uh, and it was up to us to decide. Um, I think this is the, the difficulty. I mean, you mentioned history belongs to the victors, so those who are in power and Wahhabis, there's a lot of oil money behind. I mean, my first Quran is, is from Saudi Arabian uh, money to help kind of, you know, help me to understand Islam. Now, uh, I want to just come back to you, Amina, for a minute, uh, which is you wrote once that you found that there's a European commission that, uh, or, or some kind of body that looks to ensure that the history of Europe or what happened in the Second World War is the same. So countries within Europe uh, ensure there's a, well, there is a UN body that ensures that there's one single similar history. Is, is that correct? I mean, that's taught in schools. You mentioned this in one of your... No, I don't think I mentioned it. It's in... Um, uh, you, you're referring... Because you did a, a writing, something on reconciling history. You... you, you um, and I, I'm not going crazy. This is where I, my I words come to haunt <laughs> me. And I can't even remember them. Ah, sorry. Yeah, here it is. I'm not, I'm not going mad. Uh, you, you joined Sham Salvadurai's Right to Reconcile program. Um, Ten days with 27 young men and women. And you, uh, in one conversation with the current German ambassador, you said there's a commission in Europe that examines ways to teach children in every European country the history of the world wars. And, uh, That's right. Now I remember the conversation. <laughs> so what, when... Uh, I mean, I just thought that that was kind of an interesting idea and how would they do that? So what happened was I was involved with Shyam Selvadare, who's an award-winning Sri Lankan writer. Soon after the war, we decided that the only way to make sure this doesn't happen is to bring the children of the different ethnicities together to get them to regard Tamil, Sinhalese, Muslim as friends. I have to explain a background of why this would not happen. Somewhere in the 1960s, they decided to teach children in their mother tongue. The minute you did that, you divided by means of language. So Sinhalese children, mainly Sinhalese Buddhists, got taught in Sinhala. Tamil children got taught in Tamil. Muslim children also got taught in Tamil, but because their culture was deemed to be so different from the Hindus, they had Muslim schools, so you had these, these three different vernacular schools teaching in two different languages. But what happened was you completely separated the population. So you have 30, 40 years of people growing up not having a single friend who belonged to a different ethnicity. So of course, it's much easier than for a war to happen because they're always the other. You're always fighting the other. What Shyam Selvadure decided, and he got funding from the European Union, was to have these residential workshops where you bring in uh, the students, they had to be between 15 and 19 uh, of the three ethnicities, and to sit and teach them through creative writing. And so because I was a writer, I was asked to be a co-teacher. We had a series of meetings with the European Union as to what they wanted, because funders always have an agenda. And so they, I remember asking him, how do you teach the World War, how do you teach World War II in schools? 
And then he said that all the countries have sat together and come up with a text that would be included in school textbooks that say pretty much the same thing. Now, this meant, because we were teaching Sinhala students and Tamil students and Muslim students who have all gone through their version of the war, we were using this project as how we could come up with a text that could be put into, into school books. But you need state support, and so actually that never happened. We went through the residency, we got the recommendations for the text, but the state was not willing to use our recommendations into the state textbook. In fact, in Sri Lanka, children, I think, are, their history of Sri Lanka stops at 1948. Can you believe it? Independence. They don't learn about anything post-1948 because eight years after we got independence, we had our first ethnic riot. So how can they teach it? Because basically, eight years after independence, we were already having some conflict. Uh, but I do want to talk about one common text, and um, Asgard, maybe you can help me. I heard, and I may be wrong, and maybe there may be some people in the audience who may correct me, is that, and I don't know, Masgorn, if you knew, that there were m some different versions of the Quran, of the Quran, the Holy Quran, until Caliph Osman, I believe, who then decided there needs to be one version. And so the Quran that we have is the Osmanic version, and all the other previous versions were burnt. On that note, I'll stop. Shall I answer it? I don't read the earlier version, so I cannot check. Um, but yes, they are, they are, there was a book in Indonesia called The Codification of the Quran. It tells that story. But whether there's major changes after the codification is uh, questionable. Uh, this. Yeah, yeah. This. yeah long after the prophet passed away. But then the Quran is always an interpretation. Whether you codified it or not, it's always open to interpretation. People tend to forget that, well, not forget, to read the Quran as a legal document, not like a poetry. Actually, there are parts of the Quran are poetic, and poetry is very, very interpretable. The Wahhabis want to read the Quran like a legal document. So one fixed notion of things, and forgetting there are different elements in the Quran from different languages. Somebody who studied it said that, for example, the Quran mentioned that for dinar, it's a money currency, but the dinar is a Roman currency. So see, the, the purity of the Quran is, is a myth. Always interpretation, and you are free to do it, because as I understand it, God trusts you. People, the problem with people now is you don't trust God, and the, you think that God does trust it. It's a mutual, it's religion has become a paranoia. Like, I mean, it's a little off subject, but uh, it's, it's so obvious that, that, that Wahhabism has hijacked Islam for the world 
and and uh, and how can I say this? I mean, it since Islam has this long history of, of contending schools of thought and so forth, and, and many many versions of it, um, and you have. I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people in, in Southeast Asia uh, who are Muslim, um, it seems to be a moment to try to, you know, recapture Islam for the world, uh, you know, from Southeast Asia as, as you know, as, and to kind of have a force that uh, will be critical of, of Wahhabism because, you know, it, it has taken over so much of Islam in, in terms of the eyes of the world. Yeah. I think it's a good point. Actually, in recent years, there have been attempts in Indonesia to, to speak about Islam, which is not Arab-centric. Uh, now they call it Islam Nusantara, which Islam coverings the Southeast Asian uh, areas and different lifestyles and different traditions. And we tend to forget that many things coming to South Asia, East Asia, particularly to Indonesia, is being modified or cheated one way or another. Look, what Hindu in Bali is different from Hindu in, in India. And even communism is, is being cheated in, in Indonesia. How could the Communist Party, 3 million strong, was defeated easily without any resistance? Maybe something wrong with this version of communism. But then, the, the different, the diversity of the, the area uh, is very different from the Arab world. The, the sad thing is, yeah, the Wahhabis, the Arabs have all the money to send people to, to and even to, to transform the language. You know, in, maybe also in Malaysia. Uh, we no longer say that puasa, which is fasting, is puasa should be saum. Uh, praying is no longer sembahyang, but always salat. It's Arabic, Arabization, and I think yeah, people started complaining, also in Indonesia. Hopefully, it's going to take place. I don't think that any ideological power can, can prevail for a longer time. It's always production of novelty, as I said. History is a production of novelty. I agree with Maskun in the sense that even in Sri Lanka amongst the Muslims, they've got very Arabized because of all the money, the Saudi money that has come in, and you have all these big madrasas. So when the Easter bombings happened and we were caught totally unaware, it's because, and so that was the point of my article. My article was as a Sri Lankan Muslim, living in Sri Lanka, how did I miss the signs? Because they were all there. The signs were in front of us, but we had just got immune to it, and uh, we are, the liberal Muslims or the moderate Muslims are constantly badgered that we are not the true Muslims, we are not practicing it right. Uh, we say Ramazan instead of Ramadan, and you know, they're so petty about the tiniest of details or you're praying with one leg forward when it should be the same level. And we, we went underga underground, so it's partly, we are also responsible because it's tiresome to always have to fight for your place and you just give up. 
and then something tragic happens and later you're scrambling to, to do damage control. So it was up to the moderates. Then all the fundamentalists started coming to all the moderates and the liberals saying, write something, put something to show us in a different light. Yeah, I think it's, it's the full-time work of, of uh, being able to contest and ensure that your story, your history is also there. I mean, we've gone through, the, you mentioned, you know, the subaltern histories. But all of these, there's an aspect of the story, an aspect of the history that is going to be more compelling. Now, why, for example, in the telling, the use of rhetoric, of course, there are socio-political economic reasons for why Wahhabism or Salafi has been able to kind of, uh, where you say infiltrate or make its presence felt. Is it just the swing of the para, you know, the pendulum of history going this way? So, as Masgun, you talked about, you know, that there is always some optimism in this. Uh, uh, that uh, it, this is okay. It's new words for things, but they're not adopted unless, oh, there's something, there's something appealing, well, there's innovative about, you know, I'm smile not, is old-fashioned. I'm not an optimist. I'm a certified pessimist. Uh, but there's a good saying by Lu Xun, which I really love to quote, the Chinese modern writer, which says that hope is like a road in the forest, in the countryside. In the beginning, there was no road, but when many people walk, on it, then the Europe open. I think hope should not be ordered, should be, should not be hope, should be not expected. You have to create it. And that's what we are doing. And then, then, then come the time when disappointment will take place, but then we fight on, move on. Like the Sisyphus in the Cam Albert Camus story, uh, uh, said. Every time you climb, carry the rock on the top, and then it glides again, and you have to do it again. And in the long run, eventually, you start become part of the rock, very hard. Not very, uh, Camus says that we should consider Sisyphus happy. I, I don't think that he is happy, but he's strong. It's determined. Let's run away. Just, just to be Benjamin, Benjamin melancholic for a minute, I, I, I think that there's actually too many people walking in the forest. <laughs> well, it depends. American forest is like that. <laughs> We're talking about the world, the forests of the world now, I think, have probably too many people walking. So, in fact, in, uh, you know, contrary to Lucien, it's now become a, a kind of uh, image of hopelessness. Yeah, the problem with the forest is this, it's not protected. Okay, well, I, I think another aspect of what Benjamin, at least, you know, his writings, as you say, have, are still resonant for us today in terms of having to contend with some of these ideas of when you have a history and a past that has been really so tragic, and, and you know, he's writing at a time in 1940 where this is very clear that where he is is engulfed in, in war. Um, in all of our cases, I think, in terms of what we've written, you've written about um, wars and uh, whether it is uh, Sri Lanka, you talk, there, there's this idea that we have to get over the past in some way. So one solution, for example, is to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in which people articulate what they have 
experienced. Um, in your writing, how do you contend with this idea that there is a history that is a burden? The burdens of the past, um, how do you circumvent them? How do you write through them? I mean, hope, we're walking, we're writing. How, have you, how do you consider that in terms of your own present writing, your own poetry, your essay work? I'll answer first, and then I can quickly give it over to Elliot and Marston. I think, Anne, history may be a burden, but when you're a writer, I think the key is to not make your writing a burden if you are going to move forward and you're going to achieve something. So the way I write a lot of fiction, but it is based a lot on... Uh, history, but in a way lived history, social history. And so what I like to do is to weave it into my fiction so that people, I find it much easier to put a point across if, it, if it's a story and someone is relating it as a story than if it is, I do write a lot of essays as well, but I find that people remember the stories better than the the essays that I write, because a large population of Sri Lankans just want to live, you know, a little bit fluttering and not have to think about weighty things, maybe because we've lived through a weighty time, and so you value the lightness that you have in life. Um, history is there, it's, and it'll always be a burden in to whoever who is looking at it from a different angle, and to other people, it'll be something else. So I think the way to, for us to deal, for me to deal with it as a writer, is to always write about things that need to be remembered. And I've just finished a non-fiction book. It's on Ibn Battuta in Sri Lanka. Ibn Battuta is a 14th century Moroccan writer, a traveler. What I discovered in doing the research which and I was ashamed that as a Muslim, a Sri Lankan Muslim, I did not know so much of my history in my own country till I was forced to do the research. When I did the research, I realized why I didn't know it. It's because it was boring, you know, it's like you don't want to deal with it. So I took a long time in writing this book because I wanted to find out if I could weave history in so that it's accessible to the Tamil reading it, to the Sri Lankan Sinhala reading it, to the Sri Lankan state, hopefully, who will read it, without, uh, and for them to think about what I was saying or what was being said by the historians before me. So it's, it's many times I fail in that endeavor, but hopefully a few times I succeed in my writing and getting people to think. Right now we're fighting desperately to change the Muslim Marriage and Divorce Act in Sri Lanka, which is archaic. Girls as young as 12 years or younger can be given in marriage. Women cannot effect divorce. Inheritance is dismal. A woman inherits only half of a man. And we've been fighting it for 30 years. And the state is not willing to get involved because it's a communal, it's a community problem, and the community is run by men who don't want to listen to a Muslim woman. Sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, Elliot, would you like to 
Yeah. The question is yeah, you're really guess, about yeah, yeah, the burden embracing embracing yeah, the future uh, and what to do with the burden of the past. Oh, okay. In ten words or less. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, we yeah. are going to pass to Q and A. Well, I mean, I think that I, you know, I, I, I write about recent American history. I mean, like what happened last week, um, but it's quite different from the idea of the burden of the past. And and, and I think uh, many of my uh, literary essays deal with various moments in the in uh, in the historical past, but um, uh, it's not a, it's not a burdensome at all. I mean, it's a uh, I, I keep thinking of the 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 old name for uh, Sri Lanka, which is serendip, you know, which is serendipity, which is where the word serendipity comes from. And uh, I think that many of my uh, literary essays that, that deal with things uh, uh, like the voyages of Ibn Battuta, who I've never written about, but I mean, I've written about people like that, um, is a kind of celebration of the human imagination. And so, uh, on the one hand, of course, you have the burden of history, uh, particularly for certain people in certain times. Uh, but then you also have everything else that's happened in history, and uh, and there's there's you know a tremendous amount to to celebrate in terms of the of the incredibly diverse uh, uh, manifestations of the of the human imagination. I think there's there's some there's something like this called the burden of the past. When you write, when there are two kinds of writing. When you write a poem, which I do sometimes, uh, you know, uh, the past is always there because the next phase of the poem carries the the, the shadows of the past and rhymes and images. Uh, the best way is to see time in a flux, not uh, in a space. It's a space, and I think T.S. Eliot, as uh, Burns Norton said, "Time past, time, and time present are perhaps uh, in time future." Yeah, can you hear me? <laughs> it's a very small word. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's a thing called the burden of the past. When you write the poetry, always the past is there because it's always a shade of your new words, your new images, both in rhymes and imagery. And when you write a fiction, maybe it's different, but it's very different from you write history with, a, with, the, with, the, with the notion of with the aim of Reconciliation, or make peace, or address wrongs in the past. Uh, I wrote. Uh, I, my family just recently started to have a curious project project to write about the history of my father. You know, my father was exiled by the Dutch in after the communist rebellion in twenty six to very far away in Papua and with 1,000 other people. Then he returned with his mo my mother. And after five years, he returned. And Indonesia became independence, 45. And the Dutch returned. And they took him, executed him. And 
we don't think it's, it's a great thing. I don't think because there are many people like him. But the grand, grandsons and granddaughters started to have a project to write about it. And how difficult it is. There are pains that you cannot speak. There are worries that you will create a hagiography instead of real history. And, but then if you write it in fiction, it's different. Because fiction, not only it's, has to deal with fiction, but also with, with differences, an infinite differences in every part. I wrote a, a play called Surti. It's about my mother when my father was taken away by the Dutch and shot. Uh, and I find it very funny to, to, to write about my father just like something else. It's just, uh, it's difficult to codify him. Always emerges some difference and either sadness or joy or something ridiculous. And that's the way fiction should be. Should not be very arrogant about truth. Thank you, Oscar. Uh, now I'm aware we, are, we have a short time for Q&A. Usually it's five or 10 minutes, but I like to think that audiences are alert and would love to ask some questions of our panelists to some depth. So, um, or not, as the case may be. No, somebody start leaving the room now. Uh, please, would you like to ask? Yeah, you first. Yeah. Can you use the mic, please? Sri Lanka has just had an election, a very important election, I suspect. Ten years ago, armed conflict ended in your country. Has the conflict ended? <laughs> so yes, we just finished an election last week and uh, it was not the outcome of, of some of us because uh, it was an ex, uh, it was the defense secretary who got elected as president, defense secretary who finished the war. So has the conflict ended? I don't know, it's too, the conflict per se fighting ended 10 years ago, but like as I said, I call it non-war or um, non-conflict because I can't say peace. I think they will run the country very tightly to make sure that there's no unrest, physical conflict or military unrest again. But whether conflict has ended, I cannot say now. I have to wait and see. Because now, remember, he came on a platform of fighting Islamic terrorism. So the conflict, the face of conflict has changed. And as a Muslim, so during the, during the conflict, I, would, I went through the many checkpoints. And I did have friends who were Tamil. And I know that they were questioned more than anyone else, but until the Easter bombings, uh, my husband and I own a farm in the northwest coast. We were on our way back, 
and we stopped, we got stopped at a military checkpoint and there were no smiles and no friendliness and they asked for my husband's ID, he's a Sinhala uh, Sri Lankan, so that was okay. Then they asked for my ID and I gave my ID and I was truly frightened. I just sat in my car like a little mouse and my husband quietly told me, shut up and don't tell them who you are because normally I would say, oh, I'm a Muslim, but I kept quiet. They looked at my name and they looked at me. They couldn't reconcile the image and the name. So I'm a Muslim who does not cover. I have very short hair, gray hair. Uh, I wear, I dress not generally like a Sri Lankan Muslim. So they looked at the name and what they did was they changed it to a Sinhala name. So instead of Amina, they read it as Amita. And so they said, oh, she's Sinhala. Then they look at me, then I don't say anything, I'm just looking at them. It was a very strange, intense moment. And then we got past and I heaved a sigh of relief. And the first thing I told my husband was like, oh my God, I know what the Tamils went through. So we may empathize and say, yes, I know you're having a hard time, but until you really go through it, you never know. So to answer your question, I hope there is no more conflict, but I hope that he will be able to, uh, we've never been able to have a truth and justice and a reconciliation panel because you need the state involved. The state has never been willing to be involved. And a funny question, uh, a, a funny story I heard about that is, how do you conduct this truth and reconciliation depends on the countries. So in Rwanda, there was a story of an NGO worker who said, you know, uh, all these people come from the West and they want us to sit around under a tree and they want us to pour our hearts out and talk and talk and talk. But she said, that's not what we want to do. We want to dance and sing our sorrows. That's the way we will get to reconciliation. We are able to, to move through to the path of uh, peace. Now, Sri Lanka needs to find out how we are going to do that. And we need to uh, you know, kind of come to terms with it ourselves and find a solution ourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Amina. Yes. Uh, a quick comment. I, I think it's, it's interesting when you brought uh, Arabization, but um, for me, I'm pretty wary of the term because I think it designates a wrong subject matter instead of um, a, a certain particular branch of Islamic understanding, which is Wahhabism. Because when you use the term Arabization, it's enforced idea of Orientals that all the bad is in the Arabs. So the, the term Arabization is problematic for me in that way, and it it washed away the role of American in maintaining that hegemonic Wahhabi kind of understanding of Islam. So um, uh, the question is, how do, you, how do you navigate in terms of telling a story in a language that has a very delicate meaning of it? Because you don't want to tell a different story of things. You want to tell it as it is in a clear and concise language. So how do you maintain that? kind of clarity without distorting it that we would like we use in Arabization in, in, in that sense. I think that's a good point. Would anyone ask? Like okay, clarity is not the best mark of literature. Uh, it's the idea of Descartes. 
clair et distinct. Literature dwells in ambiguity, unpredictability. So if you want to have a concise uh, and consistent uh, writings about a Wahhabi or another thing, you write uh, legal documents, not poetry. So it's a wrong question to link it to the idea of literature. You have a response or no? Okay, yep. Hi, yeah, I, I was wondering about the angel of history, to go back to Benjamin. I, I've always thought of uh, his angel of history as uh, staging, uh, a mode of staging the modern battle between the enchantment and the disenchantment of the world, between the secular, the history, and the, and the religious, the, the, the angel. Uh, and this is a battle that, uh, that is ongoing, as we know. It's a battle that does not end. And yet it, does, it can result in a state of non-war um, that is contentious but not war. And I wonder if that, that understanding of the angel of history uh, gives us a space that what, uh, what, uh, what was mentioned as a space of hope, a, a space of creating hope. So, so that they're antagonistic, but not always, uh, they're not violently opposed to one another. So that we have a space of having religion and history, angel and history in the same space. And it's a space that can create a new kind of hope rather than one that is a catastrophe, a continual catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I think you're correct. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, when, when Benjamin writes, he, he had strong mystical, I mean, he, he's supposed to have had a strong mystical attachment to that uh, uh, print as well. I think it, it spoke many things to him which were contradictory and paradoxical. Um, can I? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about the confusion. Um, Okay, I'm um, Kelvin, sorry. Um, I'm going to just take a little context from a popular role-playing game in a sense to connect to this. Um, Mass Effect, if anybody's heard of it. There's a particular character you encounter later on. He's the last of his species by the name of Javik. He awakens 50,000 late years later after his kind has been exterminated in genocide. So sorry, can I just stop you? What is this reference to? I will, I will, I'm getting to it. Oh, okay. Because, um, in this sense, because he's the last of his kind and he is the only one who remembers the bits of his culture that remain because his culture was involved in continual, a cycle of war, so to speak. So, for him, it's a bitter past because he, that he does, refuses to remember because uh, for his kind, there is, they actually have memory shards which he can use to access the memories of their precursors, their forebears or people who are not even related to them and for him he refuses to return to that past because it's, it, it haunts him. He doesn't even need to, to use that shot. The very thought of his past because he, he lived in it before he was in stasis uh, continues to haunt him and it burns like a fire raging in him to get vengeance against those who wrong him. So in the sense that because we're, we're looking at it in terms of a very uh, divisive phrase, historical revisionism. I guess in a way he was hoping to rewrite his past in the future. And here Can you we just tell me who he is in this case? 
he's, he's, he was put in, he was a fame, it was a particular warrior of this species called the Prophians. His name is Javik, he's a warrior. Yeah. Javik? It's from a game, it's from a game. It's from a game. Star Wars? Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's a So he's, yeah. in, in a way, it's, it's, it's basically he's that, it's that he is, he's a haunted past. Yeah. He wants, well, he wants, so he has he, these shards that he, the memories. He can, yeah. It, so, uh, again, sorry about the confusion. Um, right. So basically, the, the, the gist is that when it comes to historical revisionism, should we view it as something that uh, has more negative connotations? Should we allow this kind of revisionism? How should we approach it? Is it something that we should use to b uncover the past and uncover things that should not be mentioned? Or do, should we look at it in a more hopeful, optimistic manner? Uh, again, sorry about the confusion. So. If, can, can I say that it's, uh, do you want to go just, for it? It's just a video game. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> let me, okay, let me say that, uh, let me go for one of the things, which is historical revisionism. Should we look at that in a negative or a more positive way? That this is, if I say a kernel of the question, is that? Well, history writing is a conversation. History writing is a conversation. So there should be a revision every time. There's nothing wrong with that. It always is. It's always a revision. I think it's always the revision. oral tradition of history also means that you know some of it is fiction. So this lovely but, division between you know, facts and fiction, as if you know they don't actually. It's, it, but it's also worth pointing out that I mean, what's happening in fiction in the world is that. Um, in the last 25 or 30 years, you have an enormous resurgence of historical fiction. I mean, the you know modernism, the first first half of the 20th century, most not all. There's obviously exceptions, but most of the novels are about the present and about you know what's happening now and ways of presenting the present. And what's interesting, I think, in it, pretty much across most of the literatures of the world in the last 25 or 30 years is a lot of historical fiction is being written. And uh, this seems to be something that, that the, uh, you know, the novelists are doing in this attempt to recapture the past, revise the past, bring, uh, bring the past into the present. Okay, so there's a lady. Yes. So you, I thought, you know, we all heard this history belongs to um, the victors, you know, they're the ones who write the history, but I think the future belongs to those who lost um, because they have so much to gain or, you know, regain um, and just take my glasses off or prove and, and just and need to look at Turkey, you know, the rise of Erdogan and they and, and, and tribes like his rising against the historical you know Kemalist narrative the Kem, you know Ataturk was the victor and now look at you know where Turkey is today and do you think that um, if after victory peace um, could be if, if peace were more equitable you know less zero sum that it would help to avoid conflict in the future well i would like to think that but man behaves in really strange ways, so you uh, cannot predict what will happen. But yes, I mean, uh, that's what we try to work towards also in one avenue as a country. 
any other remarks? Okay, I, I'm actually going to have to... Oh, no, five minutes. Okay, thank you. Uh, please, go ahead. Yeah. Yay, more questions. Um, it's very interesting when you spoke about uh, the people who didn't want to talk. They wanted to sing and dance. I think it's very interesting. And my question is about... Um, you, you mentioned this as well. You said that... Um, the history was, is, there is now a movement where it's not, no longer being written by the colonizers, it's being written by the colonized, and a lot more paths are being given to that. But my question is, how do you speak to an audience that sometimes isn't ready to speak? Because, for example, my mother, if anything bad ever, and lots of bad things have happened to my mother, she just pretends they never happened. She's, she's a very skillful manipulator of history. She just erases them. <laughs> From her memory, from the dinner table, from the conversations, she'll change the subject. She'll talk about anything else except all those things. So I think that's very interesting. How do you speak? And I think a lot of Iraqi people are like that as well. They just don't want to talk about it. So you know, I'm also a publisher in Sri Lanka. And so soon after the war ended, we started getting manuscripts about the war and we put them out. Some books were very successful. We sold the rights to America, to England. They won prizes. And people used to... So that continued for about five years. And then the Sri Lankan public started getting tired of these war stories. They're like, you know, can't you publish something else? But I would tell them, you know, the best writing is yet to come. Because I feel you need to process things. There was a lot of stuff coming, a lot of fiction coming out about the war, but actually I think you need some distance and perspective. About your mother, she will either never talk or she will talk when she's ready to talk about it. That's the other thing I've realized, that you can't push people to talk about certain issues. We were, the, the reform to the Muslim Marriage and Divorce Act, I first got involved when I was 24. But you're very frightened when you're 24, so you're pussyfooting around a few issues. You kind of put it out there, then you go abroad and you disappear for a bit. And now in my 50s, I'm, I've become a dragon. It's like I don't actually care about what people think. I'm comfortable enough that I just write and write. To change the, in, in Sri Lanka, a Muslim woman does not sign the marriage contract. It's her father. So I wrote an article and I headed it a marriage between two men. And that really got the goat of the Muslims, you know, they were furious. Yeah, but I mean, you know, what's happening in the world right now is, is uh, oh sorry, what's happening in the world right now is, is in fact uh, uh, the younger generation, you know, forcing the mothers and more particularly the fathers of the world to listen. I mean, what's happening in Hong Kong? What's happening with the with climate change? Uh, you know, started by this this 15-year-old girl. Really, after we've known for decades that that this is happening, and yet suddenly it becomes a uh, you know a change in global consciousness started by that. It's happening in the United States in terms of gun control and everything. The teenagers are the incredible force. Um, whether it turns into actual uh, uh, political reality is something else again, but the main reason that you have youth, uh, the main effect of, of youth movements is a change of consciousness. 
and people start thinking about, about it. And I think this has been true uh, in every single youth movement, uh, you know, since the 1960s. So, uh, you know, the mothers and fathers of the world are universal in their refusal to, to listen. On the other hand, you know, there is this way of, of getting people to listen and kind of changing the, the, the whole sense of uh, how one perceives what's going on in the world. Okay. I was just reminded of, of, of you know, this idea of an idea whose time has come, you know, that Primo Levi, for example, was trying to get his uh, memoir published immediately after the, the war and nobody wanted to publish him. Um, and I think, you know, people, there is a time and a place where you really cannot, you don't, you want to dance in your head, but you, the body doesn't follow and all of this. So there is going to be some uh, confluence of things coming together for, the, for, for alternative stories to come, to come good. I'm reminded also about how, uh, you know, for, in my mind, Second World War is completely European. Uh, it's concentration camps, uh, and of course we know ben Benjamin committed suicide, right, uh, uh, is European. But in 2008, memoirs were published by an uh, Indonesian called Parlindungan Lubis. Um, it's published by um, Leiden University, where he talks about his experience in a concentration camp. And he talks about how he spoke Dutch, because uh, he's a political prisoner. Uh, he's arrested in Amsterdam. He's a medical student at the time. And I'm reading this Indonesian. He talks about how he meets Vietnamese, and they talk French. And, and these political prisoners, and suddenly this, this, this history of... Second World War and concentration had become something much closer to home. Uh, and why didn't I think of that before? Of course that would be the case, you know. This, but this is, this is something, 2008, with those memoirs, and he stipulated that they could not be published until he passed away. Um, so I think everybody comes to their own strategies, um, and uh, we just need to read as many as we can and come to our own thinking. But, sorry, time's up. Um, I want to say... <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, it's, it's like television, Elliot says. I want to please, can you give me uh, a wound, warm round of applause for our panelists? Um, we, had a, we had a weighty subject. We went to some of it, but please uh, come forward later and talk to our panelists as you please. Thank you very much for coming.